Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Praise God. It's good to see everyone. You're not glad to see me, right? You just came for the food. That's all right. That's all right. Don't worry. You're going to have to put up with me for a little bit still. Praise be to God. So we're back. Second Timothy chapter 2. DEFCON 1 is the series Defend and Contend to the End. Defend and Contend to the End. There's a war going on outside. And throughout chapter 1 and the um, last portion of chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2, we really saw Paul exhorting Timothy as the, the soldier of God to be faithful in the mission and the endeavor. And um, so now we're moving on from verse 14 of chapter 2. As we get into the meat of the matter. As we get into the meat of the matter. Some of you wondering what matter is. Because there's no T's in the way I pronounce it. But you see, having exhorted Timothy with regards to his self, his commitment, his focus, having exhorted him with regards to the need to, to pass on, to entrust to others, we're now getting to the heart of the issue. Now, it seems over the last few weeks, you can't really go a day without hearing of some next celebrity that's been involved in some kind of sexual scandal. And so you have these well-known people who are now being exposed and called to account for their nefarious activities. Sometimes these activities were like 40 years ago. But regardless, they're now being held to account. It just goes to prove that time doesn't forgive sin. And for a lot of us, when we consider the nature of some of their endeavors, the nature of some of their crimes... It sickens us to our stomachs. We see that for some of them there was involvement in what basically is pedophilia. Them interfering with and involving themselves with young children. And for those that are convicted they can be expected to have a hard time in prison. Because regardless of what crimes people may have committed in prison, there's a few things that they really don't abide. And one of those is pedophilia. It's something that affects us, cuts us to our heart when we hear of the, the vulnerable the impressionable, being exploited for an individual's self-gratification. 
We see it clearly as perversion. And perversion it is. And as we approach the text today, we see perversion, a perversion that's equally serious and yet of a different nature. A perversion that's not of a sexual nature, but of a spiritual nature. And it's a problem. And so, we see the heart of the matter is that Timothy, as a defender of the faith, contending earnestly for the gospel, is to defend from perverts properly. Now that might seem like a real, like, whoa, that's kind of strong. It's meant to. It's intentional. Because spiritual perversion is a deadly serious matter. And so turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. verse 14 as we give some consideration to the text after which I'll pray. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently 
enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for your grace by which we are saved and sustained. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that truly, truly, Christ is the conquering king, the victor, over all and in him however hot the battle we know that we have the victory because we're on the winning side and so Lord I pray that you would speak to our hearts speak to our souls Lord I pray Lord that by your spirit you would energize us internally grant us awareness grant us Lord a a, a keen sense of perception as it comes to spiritual perversion and that Lord ultimately you would teach us how to faithfully defend the truth and the true for the sake of your name we bless you now and pray for your glory amen Here, we see Paul expand on the purpose statement, if you like, that he'd given to Timothy previously in chapter 1. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, The sound words are the focus of Timothy's attention. Then, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So don't just be personally committed to following the pattern yourself, but guard that which has been entrusted to you carefully and preciously. And so, he expands on that in this text here. And we see three things in focus. It's like three movements of an overture, whatever that might be. We see Paul speak of the defender's what. thinking that, that's not really very good English. The defender's what? Well, um, I'll expand. I'm trying to be conscious of time, you know. There's too much in the text. Oh my gosh. The defender's work and the defender's way. And so we're going to track through these three elements 
these three aspects being communicated in the text and see how the Lord would speak to us. And so Paul says at the beginning, remind them of these things. Now, right here, as we consider the text, we see in this statement, Paul giving orders to Timothy. This is what he is to be about. This is what he is to do. These are his marching orders. Remind, and you can underline that in your Bible if you're able to. If if you've got an electronic one, then. (laughs) Remind, and then it goes on to say, charge. Two clear, strong instructions, furthermore, orders. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. That's strong talk. That's fighting talk. That's military talk right there. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Timothy. Who is he speaking to Timothy about? Remind them. Them who? Well, those he mentions in verse 2 of the same chapter. The very people that he is to entrust the gospel to. Paul is now saying to Timothy, remind them of these things. And that's not just the things that he said previously in the chapter, in terms of helping to prepare them as individual soldiers in the work of the Lord, but also those things which are to come. Remind them. Constantly, persistently. And those people being spoken of in chapter 2, one of the things I want to underline very, very clearly and emphatically, if you look at chapter 2, verse 2, and what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, most of us read that, and maybe particularly the ladies, you think, okay, there we go, another reference to men in leadership. But the word being used there for men is not the word that's normally used for men when speaking of the male gender. It's the word that is used when speaking of men as in humanity. And so in the Greek, it's anthropos. Normally, it's guneo. And so we clearly see that Paul has in mind both men and women when it comes to the entrusting of the gospel and them being able to teach others also. Now, for those of you who listen to female vocals, this ain't going to come as no surprise to you, but I'm bringing the, the, the challenge back to your door, ladies. I'm bringing the challenge back to your door, ladies. This includes you as ones who would be willing recipients of the gospel in such a way that you receive it with the intention to pass it on. Do you really kind of live your life with that kind of mindset? Do you live your life with that kind of motivation, ladies? You see, I think that there has been a disservice done in the church, generally speaking, 
amongst those who rightly hold to the complementarian view <laughs> as presented in 1 Timothy chapter 2 with regards to male elders. I think it's clear that that's what the text is saying. And fundamentally, you need to do a lot of work with the text for it to not say that and to come up with something else. But having said that, for those who, like ourselves, hold to the scripture as being representative of male eldership, I think the disservice has been in that women have not been encouraged to lead within the capacity in which the scripture permits. Women have not been encouraged to contribute to the process of leadership. And often what happens is, particularly in what is commonly a female-dominated environment, one-to-one discipleship and, and the discipleship of women and the leading of women can be an afterthought or very unintentional. So it happens, but it doesn't happen with the same kind of intentionality that you see focused toward men. Now, you might want to shoot me down. That's all good. I said it because that's what I feel. That's what I believe. Amen? And so, ladies, what I want to encourage you to do in the first instance is to see yourself in that place as ones who are to be responsible for others. Ones who are to be responsible for others who normally are in the majority in most church environments. You have a work to do of discipleship. You have a work to do in discipling others. Don't just think, sit back and think, well, that's cool. I'm going to leave it to the guys. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a man's affair. They can fret and worry over all of that kind of stuff. Ladies, we need you. We need you. We need you. I can't spend no more time on that, maybe community creep. So, remind them, men and women, of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel, not to fight about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Now, in this we see the issue of words being exchanged and Paul saying, look, don't fight over words. And we see this term quarrel used at least three times in this text. We see it used here in verse 14. We see it again in verse 23. We see it again in verse 24. If we also include with that Paul's references to irreverent babble in verse 16 and also controversies in verse 23, we see that there is a great emphasis here on the fact that as believers, we're not to mix it up and get into wars over words. 
Now, what does that mean? Is he saying, look, you know what? All of the, the gossiping and backbiting and all of them kind of things, look, just stop that. Is that what he's saying? Are they the words that he's speaking of? Is he saying, oh, well, and, and he could be. I mean, maybe sometimes more often that needs to be said around here because there can be a dose of gossip that's going on that ought not to be. The definition of gossip. To talk someone else's business to someone else you don't need to know. It's not supposed to be happening. God has got nothing good to say about gossip. Don't let that be a characteristic that defines your life. Shouldn't be named among us. It's a sin. But that's not what Paul's talking about. It's Paul saying, look, you know what, as Christians, we know what it's like. There are all of these non-essential issues, and, you know, we kind of, we mix it up, and we talk about it. Oh, well, the work of the Holy Spirit, the eschatology, the coming of Christ, when's it going to happen? Or, you know, what's your soteria? Are you a Calvinist? Yeah, I mean, Paul's not even talking about the non-essentials. Paul's talking about the fundamental truth of God's word. And we see that from our purpose statement in verse 13. Follow the pattern of, of the sound words that you have heard in me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so Paul makes a reference to the gospel there. And as opposed to referring to the gospel as the word in that instance, he refers to the gospel as sound words. And so from our context we get our interpretation of what he's saying here. Scripture interpreting Scripture. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So basically, Paul's saying, look, you know what? You have the truth. Don't feel like you need to fight over the truth and be debating people in their to and throwing. You have the truth. There are people seeking to, perf- to pervert the truth. But you know what? Just simply state the truth and let the truth do the work. Don't fight over it. Because it's unprofitable. What it's doing is having a negative impact on the hearers. In fact, the word ruin in the Greek is catastrophe. And it it means to turn upside down. And it's turning the hearers upside down. You know, sometimes when we um, engage folly and foolishness, we give more credit and we give more credence and we give um, a suggestion of value to that thing more than we ought to. You know, in Proverbs it says, answer a fool according to his folly. But then it also says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Now you can go and find them in Proverbs and find out why it says both things that seem contradictory. There's a time for everything. But what Paul's basically saying here is, don't answer a fool according to their folly. The truth is clear. The fundamental, essential truth of the faith, the truth of the gospel is clear. 
Don't war over it. In doing so, you're giving more credence to the error. You're placing, um, you're suggesting greater importance to the error than ought to be done. And in doing so, it's having a negative impact on those who are true. And so from this, we see that Timothy has a mandate to not only defend the truth, but also to defend the true, those who are true and who would be impacted by error. So often for us, we find ourselves in a place where, you know what, we're ready to defend the truth. But we don't really think about how we go about it and the impact that that, that has. We're just ready to defend And so in a quite a counterintuitive sense, you would think, okay, we've got to defend the truth. It's on. Let's go. I've got my verses. I've got my Greek and Hebrew. I've got my, listen, I'm ready for this. Listen. And you're ready to give your energy. But Paul's saying, hold on, lean back. Take your time. The strength of the truth is in the truth, not how hard and how vigorously and how energetically we defend it. From verse 15, we see Paul go on to speak of the defender's work. The defender's work. So he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. A worker is one who is to be properly prepared. And we see here Paul addressing the preparation of our hearts. And this verse is applicable to every Christian. We know that we as believers have to wrestle with the word. Some translations say, be diligent to show yourself approved. Some say, work earnestly. It's hard graft working with the scripture. It's such that it requires commitment. And there needs to be a commitment of heart to work it through. Sometimes, I'm sure you'd feel like, you know what? I'd love to come to, to church this, today and, and just really get... Just something that ain't overly deep, man. The week's just been, like, it's just been tense. And... I don't really want to have to, I just want one of them feel-good messages that's just going to make me just like, just get a charge, power charge for the week. And the reality is that we're like so many in our culture who just really want entertainment and an easy life. And I mean, we see that in the education system. Youths don't want to learn. They don't want to do algebra. They don't want to do geometry. They just want to have good times at school. And run joke and be class clown. So common. But we can't bring that attitude to our walk with the Lord. We've got to recognize there's work involved. And in terms of motive, look, whose approval is the worker to seek? Who's a, you can look at the text, it's all right. Whose approval is the worker supposed to seek? 
Who? God's approval. You see, one of the reasons Paul is emphasizing this is because the false teachers were seeking the approval of the culture. The false teachers were seeking the approval of those around them. And so they were perverting the gospel in order to accommodate the culture. And if we find ourselves in a place where we're more concerned with what our workmates think of us, what our neighbors think of us, what our family think of us, then we are concerned with what God thinks of us, we will be prone to mishandle the word and pervert the truth in order to make it fit with people's expectations and desires. This is a big issue. And there are many good and faithful people who, given to the ministry of the word and and missional living and evangelism, and we find ourselves meeting that challenge, meeting that tension where, how do we engage the culture in a way that they understand without diluting or compromising the message of the gospel? And sometimes we can find ourselves in a place where we fall into the error of wanting to impress the culture. And in doing so, we compromise the integrity of the gospel. And so in terms of the preparation of Timothy's heart, Paul's like, you know what? You and God is a majority. If God be for you, who can be against you? He's the only one that you need to be approved by. Make sure you're approved by him and not ashamed before him. And so where are you at today? Approved or ashamed? You know, some people, they only know those verses in scripture that they hear quoted. Don't read their Bible. I used to be that guy. I grew up in church. Until I began to read the Bible for myself and find out that half the verses that I knew that were quoted from others were actually misquoted and it didn't actually go like that. Shocking. (laughs) So, be an approved worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And again, rightly handling because it can be wrongly handled. And this is what the false teachers are doing. Wrongly handling the word of truth. This is what we see going on today. Ah, Lord of his mercy. This is what we see going on today among many who call the name of the Lord, who, who profess the name of Christ. All I can say to you is, right, you, you better be in a community group this week. You need to be in a community group this week. Please. By the grace of God. All right. So, they were, they, Timothy's to rightly handle the word as they're wrongly handling it. They were trying to conform the word to the culture because of the culture. They were trying to reinterpret the scriptures based on, you know, you know things are moved on. God needs to get with the times. Like, These are people who profess to be Christians, saying God who is outside of time, who created time, needs to get with the times. Thank you, my brother. 
different God they're talking about. Because the God of the Bible don't need to get with the times. He's the author of time. The beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, and everything in between. And he's going to be the one who calls an end to time. You don't need to get with the times. It's a madness. But this is what people say. And this is what the false teachers were saying. This is what people say today. Where's is Mike, Mike Powell here? Where is he? He's not here. Mikey P, Mike Powell sent me, I'm not even Mikey P, I'm going to confuse you. Mike Powell sent me a video this morning. And it's of a well-known Christian speaker. Um, I, you know what? I've, I've actually revised my view. A, well, a well-known professing Christian speaker called Rob Bell. And he's in London at the moment. And he was on Premier Radio on the Unbelievable Show yesterday. And he was on there, no, two days ago. He was on there um, defending homosexual marriage. as being something that Christians should endorse because God backs it. And the central point of his argument, and we're going to break it down and deconstruct it in community group. That's why I'm saying you need to be there. The central point of his argument was, basically, to paraphrase, God needs to get with the times. This is why so many people in the culture don't really want to um, connect with God because he's being presented as this God who doesn't value monogamous, committed relationships where two people love one another. Now, praise be to God, the, 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 the evangelical Christian who was there with him, Andrew Wilson, was such that he defended the argument and he cornered Rob Bell to the point where he couldn't really say anything. Couldn't say anything apart from just restate his point of view. He couldn't give a biblical basis. He couldn't say that, okay, the Bible doesn't see it as sin. He couldn't say that. And yet, things have moved on. And this is what the false teachers were saying here. In verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenius and and Philetus, or Philetus, however you want to say that, who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, you, you kind of listen to that and you think to yourself, oh, that's a minor. Obviously, the resurrection hasn't happened, so what's the big deal with such a doctrine? The resurrection's already happened. Well, we see people of the same mindset promoting a similar point of view, although not in the same terms. Walk with me. This is the science bit. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to try and do it in three steps. Yeah? As to what makes this doctrine so dangerous and how it relates to us today. So, one, What they were trying to say is that the promises of God are already fulfilled. The promises of God are already fulfilled. So, 
The resurrection's happened. We're already walking in that resurrection state. We're already walking in that resurrection power. So as a Christian, you should never be sick. Oi. Sound familiar? As a Christian, you should never be broke. As a Christian, you have revelation knowledge. Okay then. So they're saying that all of the promises of the kingdom have already been fulfilled. There's nothing else to look forward to. Pastor Rob used the, the, the phrase about three weeks ago, overrealized eschatology. That's the technical term. Basically to say that, you know what? All of God's promises have been fulfilled here and now. Everything that we're going to get from God, we've got it already. There's no sense of the kingdom now and not yet as we expect the coming of Christ and his return. But actually, we walk in that resurrection power, the fullness of all the resurrection promises now. How do they arrive at that? They arrive at that because they reinterpret scripture. So they talk from the same Bible, talking about resurrection, Bible term, calling themselves Christians, although they've swerved, diverted to become perverted. Well, it's the second point. They reinterpret. So often you will be in a conversation with someone and think that you're on the same page, but kind of have this feeling that, there's just something missing here. There's just something wrong. I don't understand how we don't seem to be kind of coming to an agreement even though we're talking about the same thing. And you're using the same words. And yet, you don't realize that although you're using the same words, those words have a different meaning to them than they have to you. Very subtle and classic form of error. We'll just take your words and redefine them. When you say resurrection, you think of bodily resurrection. You know, we just had the series, 1 Corinthians 15, right? Paul defended it, broke it down, bodily resurrection. You can go back and watch that on Vimeo. Praise be to God for the video team. But it's a literal resurrection that we're expecting. Christ himself, the first fruits of many brethren. Our time will come in the twinkle of an eye. We will be changed. We will not all sleep. We will expect a literal resurrection. But in their mind, they're saying, no. Talk about resurrection. We're just talking about the, the power of the promise. It's yours now. Therefore, you're using the same terms but talking about two different things. And we see this consistently when it comes to the promotion of error. Third step. How did they arrive at that place? Syncretism. Another technical term. And that's basically allowing the influence of other ideas to be mixed with Christianity, therefore creating some perverted hybrid, some perverted offshoot, some mutant Christianity. And so in the culture, they were saying in the culture, flesh is not good, spirit, 
is spiritual. The flesh has no part in that which was spiritual. This is a classic Gnostic belief which was common in those days. So the things of the body and material things are worthless and of no value from a spiritual point of view and therefore they won't be included in any kind of spiritual progression or reality. That was common in the culture. And so you had the false teachers being influenced like, oh boy, so you know what? This is, what, this is where everyone's at and we want to meet them where they're at. So why don't we just revise, remix the gospel to accommodate point, that point of view? Their motive being to please the people and be approved by the people rather than by who? God. And so that was the motive that led to their reinterpretation that gave manifestation to their error. Three steps. And so, Paul don't feel no way to name and defame them. To name and defame them. I saw some tweets when Shailen released his track, False Teachers. And at the end of the track, Joel Osteen is a false teacher. Joyce Meyer is a false teacher. And he goes through a whole list of people. They've, oh, no, how could he do that? That's not right. Naming people like that. They, no, just, I, I just saw one tweet. I don't like Shailen's new song. Full stop. <laughs> Didn't even need the rest of the characters. But they seem to forget that it's a biblical precedent set already. And with those who were involved in public ministry, quote-unquote, I call it ministry, publicly proclaiming Christ and pursuing error persistently, well, just like Jesus, when he stood up in front of the scribes and Pharisees, you know that chapter in Matthew when it's just straight red letters? Straight, like... It come like even the commas and full stops are all red as well. <laughs> Jesus was not having it. You brood of vipers. And he goes in on them publicly. Because they were misrepresenting God. They were breaking the third commandment. Does anybody know what the third commandment is? I'll let you guess. It's all right. You don't have to like feel bad. Third commandment? Anyone? What, you think I'm going to let you off the hook? Come on, man. Third commandment. Someone, guess. Oh, my gosh. Huh? Oh, that's a good guess. But it's not the right one. Shall not take... All right. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, that's more... It may include using God's name as a curse word, but it's more than that. It's to take God's name to yourself and declare yourself as his, you and him in good relationship when you ain't. And furthermore, to be misrepresenting him to others 
is to take the Lord's name to yourself in vain. God don't take kindly to those that misrepresent him. Now we appreciate that there are different categories. There are those who may be in error. I've preached error in my time. And I am not infallible. I am susceptible to preach error. Why? Because I don't have all knowledge. Then there are those who are persistent false teachers. Not the occasional, uh, I got it wrong, I kind of missed it there, didn't fully understand that, or I've grown in my understanding since. But these are persistent false teachers. And among those who are persistent false teachers, and the scripture would suggest the majority, you have those who are wolves. Wolves. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's like Shannon said, some of these sheep have got sharp teeth. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Think of the big bad wolf. Remember that, that fairy tale? And they are eating the sheep. They are devouring the sheep. Paul says here that they are ups upsetting the faith of some. They are causing people to become unsettled or unestablished in their faith. And you think in terms of what they're preaching, that's, that's, that's to be expected, right? So, I'm supposed to be this Christian who never sins because I'm walking in resurrection power and I'm never supposed to be sick or broke or lack any kind of understanding but that ain't real for me and I can't live up to that is this Christianity thing even real if that's supposed to be how I'm living and so they become unsettled you guys are talking about the, the Bible in these terms that I don't, it doesn't even make sense with the word. I don't, I can't, I can't understand. Look, you kind of got some secret knowledge because that's what Gnosticism is, secret knowledge. You got some secret knowledge in terms of what you, how you know to interpret the Bible. I mean, I'm just trying to read the Bible and take it for what it says, which actually is what we're supposed to do. As I said earlier, to rightly divide, to rightly handle the word is to allow scripture to interpret scripture. Our history isn't the authority. Our understanding of the culture isn't the authority. In fact, back in the day, in the 17th century, they had a, they had a doctrinal term that they used to define that principle. The perspicuity, now I have to put my teeth in for that. The perspicuity of Scripture. Scripture's ability to be taken as plain and understood based on its interpretation of itself. And we see that communicated in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the next chapter to come, and verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man, i.e. the person of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. So scripture is enough. Amen? You don't even need to know Hebrew and Greek. Activity completed. So I should have finished right there. So, understanding that scripture is enough. These guys come in with secret knowledge. Or as some might say today, I've been in the throne room. I had a revelation for the nation. That's going to bring a manifestation. And we, we know the play. Like, whoa, my man's on some next level of spirituality with this understanding and insight that he's got. And immediately we feel like we need to be reliant upon those people. And they then become those that take the place of Christ. Because they have the anointing. But Jesus is the anointed one, right? Messiah, Christ, anointed. He is the anointed. We all partake in his anointing. No one ain't got no more anointing than Jesus out here, you know. And so, the strategy that Paul says is simple. Avoid irreverent babble. Avoid irreverent babble. When they're going on, listen, don't accommodate it in the congregation. Don't give place to it. Don't entertain it. Don't feel like you need to get around the round table and, you know, pull out the camera and debate it out. The, the, the fundamentals are the fundamentals and they are true. Don't get into nothing with them. Avoid it. And I'll be honest, I've been really challenged by these statements. I've been really challenged by the, the, the statement to avoid irreverent babble and to not involve myself in quarreling because my temperament is such that I can kind of be ignorant sometimes. God's working on me. Saints, pray for me. And especially when I find something offensive, um, particularly as it relates to God, the, the Lord needs to help me. And I'll be ready to go in. And I'm learning, like, you know what? There's a work that we have to do in defending the truth that has consideration for those who are true and vulnerable and maybe unestablished in the faith and who will be confused. And we need to be considerate and mindful of them in the way that we do the work. Or else we cause more harm than good. And so, in verse 19, we see, Paul says, look, you don't have to stress over it 
Because God's firm foundation stands. God's firm foundation stands. It stands against all comers. Now, we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that the foundation that has been laid by the Lord is that of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So the church keeps marching on. The foundation is sure and there is nothing and no wind of doctrine, no philosophy or ideas, no Dawkins or Hawkins or anyone else that's going to rock that. The foundation is sure, it's firm. And it bears this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. A lot of people talking about their gods. A lot of people talking about they bear the Lord's name. Well, the Lord knows those who are his. So don't watch that, Timothy. And furthermore, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so we can have confidence in our position as we go about the work of defending the truth and those who are true. Because God's foundation is sure. Paul then goes on to give another consideration as to the work. Verses 20 through to 22. And he's saying, ah, you, can, you can defend the truth and defend the truth and you can rightly handle the word, but you better have your ways in order. A life that corresponds. So now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, we get a picture here. You might think of a mansion house back in the day. Servants' quarters. And you see, they would have lots of utensils and some might be wood some might be clay maybe some Tupperware on another, and then they've got some nice dinner set yeah they never went Argos they went Ikea nice dinner set Habitat where else do you get I don't, I don't even know where you get nice stuff from Selfridges. <laughs> but then, Harrods, yeah. But then, they had that stuff that was the bone china. The stuff that didn't even get used. It was just on display to show how big they were. Just to show how much money they had. I had to go and do something up Pimlico Road. And I saw some artifacts. And I thought to myself, what in the world are people going to be doing with these artifacts that they're selling in these shops? And, when you, and you know like when you go in somewhere and there ain't no prices on anything? <laughs> it's one of the, if you need to ask, you can't afford it. <laughs> it was one of those kind of spots. 
And so these people would have had that fine china on display. And so you've got these different range of utensils for different use. On one hand, you would have had the scummy stuff that the servants use. You wash it, you can't even get the grime out, you can't even get the, um, the tide mark out of it. Even to the extent of, and this is what it would have been like in those days, they would have had the, 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 the bucket, whether it's clay or wood, that they would spit in or even use to go to the toilet and relieve themselves. And so we see this broad range of utensils, vessels. And Paul's saying, all right, so which one are you going to be? Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be one of those disposable polystyrene, not really very useful when it's done, just gets discarded? Are you going to be one that's Okay, maybe a little more useful. You're reused. But you're, you're kept round in the servants' quarters. Or are you going to be that, that Ming Dynasty vase? You see, we're given a choice here. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, from false teaching, from ungodly behavior. Anyone cleanses themselves, they'll be a vessel used for honorable use. And you see, the thing is, to the Greek, they might have thought about the mansion house. To the Jew, they might have thought about the temple. And that would have given a whole nother insight and understanding when they think about those utensils that are used for God's purposes in the house of God. And those other ones that weren't, they just waved the clock at me, you know. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Told you too much in the text. So what do you do? How do you make your choice? Flee youthful passions. Now that's, just not, that's not just talking about sex. That's not just talking about money. But we see by the things that Paul highlights that these things are to be the things that are opposite to the things Timothy was or would have been getting into. So pursue righteousness rather than self-righteousness. So often we find ourselves in that place. Yeah, I'm a defender of the truth, you know. I know the gospel. I know my, I know my scriptures. I know the Bible. Yeah, I know a couple of Greek words as well. Logos. Yeah. And we get self-righteous, thinking that our knowledge saved us. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so, faith, don't trust in yourself, trust in God. Love, may your motive not be for your own glory or your own satisfaction, but for the benefit of the one with whom you share. Love and peace, not contention, not beef. Not trying to win an argument, but rather win souls. Be peaceable. Along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
Watch the company you're keeping. Watch the people that you're moving with. And so, in conclusion, the defender's way. Paul goes on to elaborate on this in the final verses, verses 23 to 26. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. I mean, if you didn't know at that point, it had already been told in the, in the, in the, in the, earlier on in the chapter. So this is a, a reaffirmation of the point that Paul's driving home. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to those who agree with him. No? Okay. Kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. People are going to badmouth us. People are going to insult us. In community group, we watched this video um, of this brother. What's his name? Ryan Anderson. And he's a brother who was getting grilled by Piers Morgan and this other lady about, again, the same issue of gay marriage. And they, they got personal on the guy. Oh, I can see that you really don't know much. Like patronizing, like he's some ignorant guy. The guy's just written a book about the issue. He's done his research. They didn't care. They, people will badmouth us, and yet we're to patiently endure evil Correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. You see, it's not even just those that we know are vulnerable and seeking after the truth that we're to be concerned for, but even those that oppose us are candidates for salvation. God can save the pervert. And you can take that word whichever way you wish in that sense. God can save any pervert. And we have to remember that. And we have to pray for that. And not just see the person as our enemy. Because we don't fight against flesh and blood. And this is what we see Paul underline at the end. That they may come to their senses and escape. Pastor Rob talked about prisoners of war. There's a war going on outside for the souls of men. And the enemy is holding people captive to do his will. But the gospel is the truth that sets people free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And so we have the upper hand. And we're able to be encouraged. Um, I'm going to ask the guys to come and join me as I share some closing considerations. It's just over a year since Whitney Houston died. And at her funeral, Kevin Costner stood and spoke about his relationship with Whitney 
and him starring alongside her in the film, The Bodyguard, and the way in which he defended her in, in, in order to get that role. And not only did he defend her to get the role, but she got the role, and this was against the, the advice and, and the wishes of his producers and the studio and everything. And he, he went on to say in his talk, you know, in the film, I pretended to protect you, to defend you. But now you're gone all too soon. And I thought about that, and I thought about there was a dimension of the reality of him, you know, taken up on her behalf. But ultimately, the purpose was so that they could play a role, so they could act out this scenario, and he pretend to be this defender, this protector. We ain't called to pretend. This is real. We're not called to act and play a role. We're called to do this because the truth is such that it must be preserved and it must be proclaimed. And as I ask you to stand, I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to think prayerfully. Are you one who rightly handles the word? Are you one who's given to and inclined towards those preachers who like to give the feel-good vibe? The man-centered gospel that ultimately suggests we're, we're here and God is here for us to give us whatever we need and whatever we want and make us successful. Those who pervert the truth. Those who reinterpret the scriptures. They don't care. They do it to their own end. Are we inclined toward them? Are we lazy Christians who don't work at the word? Are we individuals whose lives are dishonorable? Are we like double agents? When we're amongst our friends and when we're amongst our colleagues and our family, they don't even really see Christ in us. We're just like them. We never share our view. We never share our convictions. Even in, in the right way, in the proper way, in the non-offensive way. The non-argument, non-argumentative way. See, however you respond to that, the reality is that we are to seek God that we might grow and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That we would be those who are faithfully able to give a defense when asked the reason for the hope that is in us. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? 
And we need to ready ourselves and prepare ourselves in order to do that. And so be encouraged. As much as you may be challenged, be encouraged. Because God's firm foundation stands. And the Lord knows those who are his. Amen. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel to save even the perverted. And we know about that, Lord, most of us that are here, because we were that perverted person. We were perverted in that, Lord. We preferred lies over truth. We preferred ourselves over you. None of us were born Christians until we were born again. And so, Lord, regardless of how we view our our past life, and regardless of where a person's at, Lord, in terms of knowing you, we recognize that your word is true. And we thank you, Lord, for the revelation of the gospel. And we thank you, Lord, for the strength that we gain and the fact that you equip us and establish us in you to considerately declare your gospel to others. Use us, Lord, I pray. Use us, Lord, as as we surrender to you and as we make ourselves available to you. Use us, Lord, we pray. That truly we might be vessels useful to you, Lord, that bring honor to your name. We pray this for the glory of Christ and through his name alone. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.